0: Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim
1: Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. What we want to do at in, uh, in this, this time is take an opportunity to be able to uh, do our Q&A um, session here where really you can ask anything that you want and there's not a, a sermon planned here um, and what I like to do is, um, is have just not just myself up here, but have several people that, that I respect and admire, um, even different perspectives. So what's going to happen is Gabe is going to be the moderator. That and correct. Um, so Gabe's going to be taking the questions. And if, if your question is worded a certain way, that's, you know, I mean, you word it however you want, but, but uh, he might change the wording a little bit to make it a little broader. Um, and then, so, so he's going to be moderating, but I am very pleased to, to um, welcome back up to the platform Andre Mooney. Um, Andre is a professor of world religion at um, Grand Canyon University. He's also been a pastor for many, many years, um, chaplain in the Air Force, and uh, you're working on your PhD right now, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, sir. All yes, right. Sir. So um, he's a smart guy, and, and, then, and then you get me. <laughs> So um, we'll we'll just have a good time with this. And yeah. so I'll, uh, at this point, I'm going to turn it over to, to Gabe, and you'll let us know what the number is and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah,
0: there'll be a number on the screen. What you can do is you can text in, and like you said, I might re- rephrase things, especially if I have multiple things on the same question. I might try to encompass those together. And then we also um, – so those will come to me here, and then I'll kind of go through those and watch the time and make sure that we're moving along. And uh, that's pretty much it. We had a few questions emailed in in advance. um, So I want to start with those. So the first one I want to ask you is this one comes in and it says, is it necessary to be baptized in order to be saved?
2: Andre, go for it. I'll take that one. Absolutely not. Um, Salvation comes by faith in the profession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Evidence of such profession, which is an internal transformation, comes as we are baptized, showing a transformation that happens inward, outward, to the witnesses that Jesus Christ is Lord.
1: Yeah, and um, we don't need to be baptized to be saved. Acts 2.38 and 39 um, is sometimes confusing people because Acts chapter 2.38 says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is where a lot of people who believe in what's called baptismal regeneration, meaning that you get baptized and that you're saved because of that baptism, they will point to that verse, Acts 2.38, because it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. But you have to remember that word for is very important. For can even mean one of two things. It can either mean for as in, in order to get, like, you know, I will, I will give you $10 for your computer. But not a good deal. Not a good no. deal. Or, if you give me something, I will give you $10 for the fact that you gave it to me. I will give you something for the fact that I received it. Clearly, so e- either one of those is, is appropriate for the use of that word. We sometimes in English tend to use the for more as to get. But in this case, the for is because of what's been given. And to, to really go on what Andre said, if it's possible for, you, for baptism to be the thing that saves you, then the work of Jesus Christ on the cross really isn't that great. It's like, well, he did all this, you know, died on the cross for your sins, rose on the third day, but unless you get in the water, you're not going to heaven. So absolutely, we are saved by grace through faith alone. It's a beautiful thing. Baptism is not like wearing your wedding ring. If you, you don't need to wear a ring to be married, right? I mean, you, you, you can be married and not have a ring. But at the same time, if you don't wear your ring, it's kind of like, if you don't want to wear your ring, then you're not really wanting to show anybody that you're married. So on the one hand, I'd say baptism is not, it's not necessary for salvation at all, but on the other hand, if you don't want to get baptized ever, then I kind of question like, well, like, do you believe this? Because Jesus said, hey, I want you to show people that you believe by the fact that you're getting baptized.
2: Right. Not to mention the fact that Jesus himself was baptized in fulfillment of the Father's plan for his life, and so to uh, Pastor Tim's point, um, we don't want to minimize baptism because it's very, very important. In fact, um, we are saved unto good works, and so if we look at baptism as being a, a type of work, it's a measure of obedience that we can display in our allegiance to what Christ has come and done in our lives. So.
0: That's great. Um, so I want to follow up with that. There's some other questions in regards to baptism. Um, maybe you could speak to um, sprinkle baptism versus immersion. Is there, obviously, you've kind of already lessen some of that so maybe you could address that specifically and then maybe infant baptism and what what what's our view on that
1: yeah the mode of baptism whether you're sprinkled or immersed is not really as important we do immersion baptism because we believe that the word but the Greek word for baptism is baptizo and that literally means to dip or to immerse at the same time if a person were to come to Compass Church and say they were baptized as a believer as an adult or as a person that knew what they were doing and they were sprinkled, and that was the mode of their baptism, we would be fine with that because that's not really important. I um, mean, it would be fun to dunk you again, but it's not necessary. The other side is, um, you want to take infant baptism?
2: Infant baptism is a, a real interesting thing because denominations really believe in the idea that, and, and you get it, right? You get the gesture that a parent will want to make sure that their child is taken care of mm-hmm. in eternity. And so you get the impetus behind it. But the reality, like Tim was saying, Baptizo, if you take the Greek, it means, it means immersion. So that kind of takes the modality of sprinkling out. Um, what we do here at Compass Church is we like to do dedications. Mm-hmm. Um, the premise is very much the same. It's the idea that we as a church are going to come along spiritually to take care of the rendering of a young child, um, and we're going to raise them up in the way of God's Word. And so a dedication is more in line with what the Scripture teaches us versus a sprinkling, a drop here or there, saving a child to eternity.
1: Yeah, we wouldn't want... Um we understand that if you baptize your child, you're, you're tr- it, a lot of times it is kind of like a dedication, but we don't want you to think that your child is automatically saved mm-hmm. because we know that every person has to come to that, that decision on their yeah. own. Yeah. And so if you, I mean, what the, really the implication is, so now the child can do basically anything that he or she wants throughout their life, but because you chose to baptize them, they're somehow covered in all of eternity. So we would, we would kind of take issue with that. At the same time, we want to honor the intentions of parents who were saying, I just want to do what's best for my, my child. You know, we, don't, we wouldn't say that was like a terrible thing that you did that, but we would, if you were, if you were sprinkled as a baby and you were to come to Compass as, a, as a, an adult and you were to find Jesus, we would want you to get baptized again because we want you to experience that knowingly. No one remembers their baptism when they were a baby just, cause like, just like you don't remember the, when you were born. Thank God, you know. God protects you. By hiding certain memories from you. So it's not awkward on holidays and stuff like that. Hey, Ma.
0: Yeah. That's good. That's good. Speaking of holidays, how do you transition out of that? Uh, How is Jesus a descendant of King David through Joseph or Mary? Take a genealogy question for you. How is Jesus a descendant of King David? Is it through David or Mary, or how does that work? So I think we'll have to hop to the beginning of Matthew, right? Uh,
1: yeah. That's an interesting That's question. Yeah. You know, I, well, okay, I think... The, I and think, what's
0: the significance of that?
1: Well, the significance of the genealogy is the fact that, that buried in the genealogy, all the way back from Genesis 3, um, when God promised to send a Savior, and then, and, then he, and then he established the nation of Israel, and out of the nation of Israel will come you know, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, will come a Savior. Um, Now, the significance of that is I think Joseph, I think maybe the question is Joseph is in the line of David and Mary is not. Um, So, what's kind of cool about that is the fact that there, we talked about this on Christmas Eve, that there is not a biological um, uh, link to Joseph because Jesus comes as an act of grace. Joseph is the that was, is the father in the sense of the human father and, and the line of Joseph um, in terms of him marrying Mary. But the wonderful, beautiful part about that genealogy, as we said before, is humanity cannot come up with a Savior on its own. And so the Holy Spirit intervened and gave to Joseph what he could not have done for himself.
2: And then also, Tim, when we look at the uh, lineage of, of David, you've got to understand the distinction. Saul was man's choice for the king of Israel and David... Was God's choice. And so what we see is we see a distinction between man's line and God's line. And so when God establishes his line mm-hmm. through David, the first king of Israel, we see very clearly, as the scriptures prophesied, the Messiah would come through that lineage that God would establish versus what man wanted. And That's you a know,
1: it's a good It's a very good question. And, I, and what he said is so important because understand, even something as boring as genealogies has, has driven into it the idea of grace. Yeah, amen. Who is also in the re- genealogy of Jesus? Rahab. Yep. Who is Rahab? Yep. A Gentile prostitute right. Amen. who was put into the very line of Jesus. That communicates something. The idea that there's supposed to be this, this pure line is, is not found in, in Scripture. Um, there, there, there is grace. There is the redemption of Jesus. Not just the people of God as in the Israelites, but all people. And, and the genealogy speaks powerfully of God's intention and God's, um, God's grace towards us.
0: That's great. Uh, we, we're starting to get in a lot of apologetic questions, so I want to kind of hop over to that. Maybe you could start to, uh, you kind of touched upon this on, on your Christmas Eve sermon, but can you explain some of the basic differences, this one specifically asked, between Hindu and Christians?
1: Um. Well, hin- Hinduism is, is part of uh, an, is an Eastern religion, and Hinduism the, the, the basic difference between Eastern and Western religion is that in Western religion or in Christianity you have a monotheistic faith, the belief in there's one God. Now we believe in one God in three persons, but well, we can get into all that. But we still believe in one God, so it's monotheistic faith. Whereas Hinduism would believe in what would be like a pantheistic. That's, that's different than polytheistic. Like polytheistic is many gods. You have the sun God, the moon God. Pantheism is God is, God didn't just create everything, everything is God. So the table is God, the cup is God, the Bible is God, um, everything is God. And so, you know, out of that then you have a whole series of beliefs that, that flow out of that and really at that point God becomes very difficult to know because how do I, how do I know or identify or recognize a table or a, you know, and then what happens is I end up worshiping creation. So for example, uh, in Hinduism you have a sacred cow. Always remember this, always remember whenever you don't have God, you have, um, you end up worshiping something else. So when you have a sacred cow, I've been to India, and I've seen sacred cow, we almost hit a cow on the road, and I literally, as I, I swear to you, I did this, we were, I was, the guy was driving and I, was, I could see it because I was sitting in the back seat in the center. And I was watching through the windshield, we had a slammer our brakes, and I literally was like, holy cow!
0: It's good.
1: I swear to you, it was a holy cow. The cow was holy. Why? Because there's divinity in everything. So who suffers? You do. I read a statistic one time that said India India produces enough food to feed the world seven times over. But they have a starvation problem in India. Why? Because you can't kill the rats. Because the rat might be your Uncle Bob. Come back from the dead. So the rats eat the food. And the people starve. So, anyway. But you could have more say that, probably. No, you hit it
2: on the head. You hit it on the head big time. Um, Polytheism versus monotheism is really the key to it all. And uh, pantheism, kind of what Tim said. um, And we've got to be careful, too, in Western society, too, to see God into everything. Because God's not in everything. He's sovereign over everything, but he's not in everything. And so we've got to be very careful. Good point.
1: I would say that, and be careful, but I would say that the the, the The reason why sometimes and again i we have solar panels on our house i i, I don't I'm not a big i don't like uh i I love nature um, i I love saving money on gas so um you know all that kind of stuff i I love the the beautiful untouched you know desert nature I really do I love it out here but i've I've hit the environmentalist movement hard sometimes from the front the reason why is because it it is a it is an ejection, a very subtle re. Say, I could say reincarnation of pantheism, slipped into our society, that ascribes a kind of a naturalistic deity to nature, the nature that nature that human beings have somehow come in and, and are wrecking the the circle of life, and that's very dangerous because the more you elevate nature mm-hmm. to a deistic status, the more you you denigrate humanity. The more humanity suffers, the more the more creation. I'm not talking about p- water pollution. I get that we, have, we should have clean water and clean air. But the minute I can't cut down a tree to build a house to make shelter because I'm gonna I'm gonna damage the life of that tree, that's when I've gone off the deep end.
0: Wouldn't it be the same too as like um, creation's a resource?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Money's not evil, but the love of money's evil. Creation is great, but the love of creation as something you worship Mm -hmm. that's where you that's where you go into the wrong that's that's really just what paganism is Mm -hmm. it's just the worship of creation and as we start to do that we start to go down the wrong road that's where things get kind of messy because god's no longer god you know i gotta save this tree he's not in control of the things i'm in you know that sort of thing and it
1: ultimately subjugates humanity and it ultimately is suicidal. There are people in England, there are young women in England who are having themselves sterilized so they won't bring any children in the world because they believe that children are, are an eco, a threat to the ecosystem. Humanity is a threat to them. I mean, think about it. If carbon, di- if carbon dioxide is a poison and I breathe it out, every time I, I breathe out carbon dioxide, I'm poisoning You know, it's just that logic. So we have to be, these things have, these ideas have consequences. Yes. They, they do, and so I, I, I get concerned about any, anything that begins to subjugate humanity. Um,
0: along these lines, how should Christians respond to attacks on our faith, both, both physical and
2: societal? Well, that's a multi, uh, multi-tiered question. Dealing with the physical, um, the Beatitudes are pretty simple. Um, turn the other cheek. Um, the display of aggression toward an aggression perpetuated on oneself isn't the Christian testimony. Um, The crucifixion is evidence of that, right? Um, And the other part was societal. Mm -hmm. If we treat each one the way that we wanted to be treated, then hopefully that would reciprocate and we would have a community of people who would look out for the well-being of others versus themselves. I think it just starts with each person. You said something on Christmas Eve
0: where you were talking about how it's great to be accepting of people's religions in the sense of, of accepting the people, but to say that all ideals are equal, that's where the real danger is. Maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit in regards to this.
1: Well it goes back to the Hinduism thing. You know, I mean we, we need to let we need to have a value where we let people worship as they as they will. But but we have to also understand that that there much of the oppression of the world today, in the world today, comes from the ideas that people have about right. about God themselves and, and the world they live in. You know, to go back to um, Andre's point about the Beatitudes, understand that, that a lot of that stuff is related to personal issues. So when I say turn the other cheek, it doesn't mean let someone, let someone stand there and beat you or beat your family for any reason. Um, it does. It, what it has to do with, it has to do with personal insults, personal attacks. And that's where a lot of our problems come from. If someone personally attacks you, you know, um, you 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 can show them the kingdom by your are not retaliating and going down to that that same level. Right. Right. You know, you show them something different. I do think that that's a little bit different than the issue we deal with in regards to to um, government and that sort of thing. Remember that in the Roman Empire, they were being per- the government was persecuting people, um, and and so they decided that that that. that The the system of power that was over them, they could not overthrow it with violence. They did not want to overthrow it with violence. They wanted to overthrow it with love, and eventually they did. Our system of government isn't that way. Our system of government actually finds its roots in our belief system. So it's our responsibility to defend that system of government um, and to make a case for the system of government that has brought us all this freedom. So we have to be careful before, because sometimes people are very, they, they say, well, we should be pacifists because the Roman Empire, they were pacifists. Um, and I don't really think that they were, but they were in a different context that, that, that they were in a system that was not based on Christian principles at all. We are and it is our responsibility to claim the rights that have built this, this country. So that's, that's kind of where I believe. But, but again, that's different. The society is different from the personal interactions you have with your family, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers that attack you personally. That's different. It's not your right to go and, and, and right. retaliate.
2: And then just to piggyback on that, if you guys remember back in the story of Daniel, um, it's believed that he was under Nebuchadnezzar's government. And by about 2830-ish, he gained the favor of the king. The question is, how did he gain that favor? Because he stood his ground. One of the things in our world today is, as Christians, we feel like we have to be politically correct. No, we don't. We can stand our ground. One of the best things that we have to display to another person who would want to perpetuate violence is our testimony. I don't have to tell you about the significance or the, the tenets of my religion, but I can tell you about a relationship in Jesus. I can tell you how that relationship plays out in my life. You might have an ear then. And so when you take it back to what Daniel did, is, is Daniel stood fast on his belief. And because of his staunch unwillingness to compromise his belief, when the king most needed him to interpret the dreams that he was having, guess who was right there? And so as Christians, man, we can stand up. Just like Tim was saying, we don't have to be weak. We don't have to be walking mats. But we don't also have to throw the first punch. So, good point. Yeah. So let's
0: talk about, you know, defending yourself, that sort of thing. Now that we're in the idea of the realm of ideas, should Christians carry guns to defend themselves? How is this presented in God's wow. Word? That's
1: Wow. Wow. What a great question. Um, wow. Okay, so, uh, so. so John Piper... Um, recently, there was some stuff that came up on Facebook, some articles he had written about this, and he, he I don't think he's a pacifist, but he, he was saying that, that Christians should not. Um, first of all, no one should carry a gun unless you know how to use it, <laughs> okay? So don't get all fired up at what's going on in the society, and then go out and buy a gun, and you don't know what you're doing. Um, so be very careful. You should know how to use a gun. You should know the rules. You should know the laws. You should know, because it's not just about carrying a gun. I I personally, um, I have no problem with a Christian carrying a gun. I would hope that 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 would be used as a way. See, here's the deal. If I I say, well, if I'm going to carry a gun, my ultimate goal, if it's just about self-protection, I have to ask myself, okay, well, you know, I have to examine my heart because really it should be about protection of others as well. And, and the idea of, of protecting myself against and others against evil. You know, I, I, I see, I'll tell you this, I see nothing righteous about a, about a, a person who, you know, would, would be in the vicinity of San Bernardino when that whole thing happened and having the ability to stop that and, and choosing not to. I just see nothing righteous about that. Mm. Um, I see nothing holy about that. Um, I, I trust in the sovereignty of God. When God knows when it's any 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 given person's time to go. So so um, in other words, that's one of the reasons why I have no problem with and we can get into the death penalty and everything else, but but God's sovereign over that. So so God knows that we have to we we have um, the kingdom of men right now and we do our best to to display the kingdom of God. But the reality is is that we have to take care of things sometimes. And so if a person is going to die, if God wants that person in his kingdom, he's gonna he's gonna have to do what he has to do to rescue that person before they come to their end. But it's I, I am not It is, Jesus never requires me to sit there and watch other people get slaughtered because I feel like I should not take action. So in that sense, I would have no problem with someone carrying a gun. At the same time, I don't like the attitude sometimes of, you know, you come in, you come in into my house and you take my TV, I'm going to blow your head off. No, I don't, I have a problem with that because that, that, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Um, You know, if, if, Jesus also says if someone wants to steal your, your, to take your, uh, um, what is it? Cloak. Yeah, then let them take it. Now, and then again, that, was, that would be the Roman soldier that would, that would have done that, that would have been power doing that. But, um, so if, if someone came up to me on the street and said, hey, give me your wallet, and I had no, you know, I, I wouldn't say that person deserves to die. I think that person could be neutralized or stopped, but I don't think that that would be right. Um, there are situations I, when I was growing up um, that people could have, stupid, you know, kind of things I did when I was young. That if someone would have had this attitude, like anyone comes near me, they're going to get shot. I may have been the person that got shot. Thankfully, that wasn't me. So God, God was able to rescue me out of that out of that life of not like it was violent crime or anything, but just stupidity of being a youngster and doing things I shouldn't have been doing. And had people had the idea of well, we're just going to shoot at anything that does anything wrong, I probably would be dead or severely injured. So I, I think we have to be very careful that we don't, in the process of of saying hey, let's defend ourselves and Second Amendment, which I'm a I am I, I purchased a gun recently. Okay. So I'm just being honest. But in the process of that, that we don't remember that all life is sacred, okay? And, and that we have to be very, very careful um, before we just think, well, let's just uh, in, inadvertently um, shoot people if they get in our way or whatever else. What do you think?
2: Well, that's, uh, that's one close to home because um, I've actually been in conversation, me and my wife have been talking about getting one. And um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because uh, Tim and I are both uh, chaplains and so we're non-combatants. And um, and so, if Tim and I were in a situation of warfare, and we took up arms, we would get court-martialed because we're not combatants, um, according to the uh, Geneva Convention. Um, but the reality is, is that that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the only ones that abide by that ruling are the participating countries that choose to follow that. And I don't think people follow rules in warfare. Um, and so, what I've really been thinking about is, is, I've been thinking about just what Tim said. Okay because I'm away from home a lot, um, because my wife travels by herself, is by herself a lot. Um, and we've had the conversation yesterday and it's, it's at a bit of a stall right now because it's just the idea. Um, but before we decide to do anything, we're going to learn everything that we can about the gun. If we do go down that road, we will be trained to use the gun. Um, but to Tim's greater point, sanctity of life is where we're at. And so we haven't made a decision, but it's something that we're thinking about.
1: You know, there was a, there was a woman, um, it, it happened in Indiana, some of you guys probably heard about this, it was a pastor's wife, young, young couple, um, she was pregnant with the couple's second child, um, he went out for a workout early in the morning, two guys came in, um, raped her and, and murdered her, and they caught, they ended up catching him. And I, I, I would just defy anyone who is a pacifist, any Christian pacifist, to say that the right thing to have done if you had the ability would be to stop those people. And I, 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 I'm, I'm not a spokesman for the NRA, but I will tell you this, I, I've never heard a person be able to answer the, the, the statement that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. You know, I just, I don't know, I don't know what else to, to say. You know, I, I, I think, I'm not, and I didn't grow up with guns. I'm not, I'm not a, like, a violent dude. But um, you have to look squarely in the eye of, of what's out there and you have to be and you have to say, Okay, well, if we're in this situation, what do we do? I told you before, we have security guys here that are armed. We are not we, we are not gonna let our congregation get slaughtered because we have this idea that, you know, Jesus says, Don't take up arms against anyone that tries to hurt you. If someone tries to come in and hurt one of our kids, they will be put down. I I, just, I this just the way we ha- it's just I, I can't I can't live with myself any other way. Right. You know, that's a decision that this person made and, and our decision is to keep people safe here. So anyway.
0: That's good stuff, good question. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I carry because I got these
1: yeah. guns here. he's got double so, barrel right there, so get your tickets to the gun show right over here. I oh. just got
0: my concealed license that's why I'm wearing a sweater. Yeah. Um, yeah there's a lot of questions about Islam, a lot of questions about um, wow. what what should what should our stance as Christians be with letting in uh, Islamic refugees and, and that sort of thing. There's a lot of questions kind of revolving around okay. this, so we're going
2: to spend a little time here. Okay, so I'll just tell a real quick story. Um, I was going through pre, uh, pre-deployment training um, in Texas, and um, there was a couple of us chaplains and a whole bunch of security forces, and this was when it really all broke out. And one of the things that the sergeant was up talking, going through a bunch of briefings for two weeks, and he was talking about what Islam is. Um, and he was sadly mistaken about what Islam was. And so in the back, I raised my hand and said, you know, Sergeant, God bless you, but this is our area, and I shared what it is. The reason why I tell you that story is is because before we make an indictment on Muslims, study to find out what their belief is. Because just as we have radical Christians who historically have shed blood, we have radical Islamists that are now doing the same. And so educate yourself because it's all fun and games until we see someone dressed in a certain garb or meet a profile, if you will, and we make a judgment and we know not that person. And so what I would say to first address anything is educate yourself on what Islam is. Then I've got some thoughts about our government, but that's for another question, I guess.
1: Yeah, um, I'll just tell you what I, what I believe. I, I think that there are... Um, there's, there's a difference between, there's some similarities and differences in how we look. In, in Christianity, I see a person who takes the Bible very seriously, all of it, and the, the more seriously a person takes the Bible, the safer I feel around that person, because that person will ultimately read what Jesus says, greater love is no one than this, and they lay down his life for his friends, sees sacrificial love, sees, counts his life as nothing. Okay, so I feel, I feel the more, the more strictly a person that hears the words of Scripture. Not a false interpretation, but, but what Jesus actually says, the safer I feel on that person. A more nominal Christian, a person who just says, "Ah, eh, you know, Christianity is a nice tradition, but there's other ones out there too. I, I worry because I, don't, I, I think that these words of Jesus are not taken very seriously. For example, um, no one comes to the Father but through me, and that kind of thing. is like, ah, said, he didn't really say that. Now in Islam, I think it's the opposite. I think there are a vast majority of people who culturally are Muslim culturally and believe in Allah and try to live a holy life, but there are certain sections of the Quran that they don't really follow because they don't take it all that seriously. They don't, they don't take it to the fullest extent that it's taken. I don't worry about those people. The ones I worry about are the ones who take the Quran extremely yeah. extremely extremely seriously especially in the last part of the Quran. There's certain parts of the Quran that they do talk about peace and everything else but there are other parts that do not and and i heard a, a, a muslim talk about this very recently that one of the differences between christianity and islam is that christianity it starts off the judeo-christian bible you know the whole thing starts off kind of violent as god's dealing with the tribes and everything else in the different different world but as it progresses it becomes much more peaceful the quran is exactly the opposite it starts off rather peaceful and as it progresses it becomes more violent and so, that's, so I, I do think that there, are, there, have, there has to be billions of peace-loving Muslims, otherwise we'd have warfare all over the world. I've met many of them. I've been in Muslim countries, and I felt fine for the most part around certain people. But at the same time, um, there are those who take it extremely seriously and want to live out every last little page of it and what it commands. Those people are a problem. The other side is immigration. Um, you know, I would say that... We, this country has always been a place to welcome the, the outsider and the stranger, and I think that's good. At the same time, I think that the ideal sometimes can, can overshadow the intelligence of what it is that we're trying to do. Right. And if we're knowingly taking people who have a radically different idea of what the of way the world should be, um, without, without vetting them, without looking at them, without asking them um, what, what, you know, what's really going on here, then we have a real problem. I don't know how well we can even do that. My understanding is because people are saying, well, what about all these Christians that are fleeing Syria? And that's true. But then the reports that you read say that a very, very small minority, tiny minority of, of even of the refugees that are coming in are even claim to be Christians. The vast majority are Muslims. We don't know um, necessarily what's going on. So on, there's like a, we had to have some kind of balance of like give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. I, that's, that's what this country was built on. But also understand that we're going back to the conversation about comparative religions that, that, the, that the faith acted out in, in, uh, in great um, sincerity by a lot of Muslims is radically different than the country that we live in. And their country, their, their nation is tied much more to their religion than, than ours is. So um, it's, a, it's a concern. I think it's a great concern. But here's what we have. To, here's the bottom line is, guys. Understand that you, you may never want to be a missionary in, in your entire life. And guess what? You don't need to be one because you already are one. And the mission field, you don't have to go to the mission field. The mission right. field is coming to you. Right. So you better know what you believe because if we're getting all these hundreds of thousands of Muslims coming in, then you better know what you believe, and you better know how to speak to those people, mm-hmm. and you better know how to show Jesus' love. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, love does win. I believe that, it, and by the way, my understanding is that there's, there are Muslims um, coming to faith in Jesus all over yes. northern Iraq and these places that have been most heavily persecuted. In fact, on the, you know, I serve on the board of, the, of Indigenous Ministries um, International where we bought um, some land for the church in Egypt, and they do a, a variety of work, and they do some work in northern Iraq, and they were saying that um, the pa- actually uh, my main contact was saying that, that there was one pastor, and several of them, but one in particular in northern Iraq who is who um, a refugee from northern Iraq, and he in, in, living in the area where the Kurds are, and saying, we are grateful for ISIS. Because ISIS has caused moderate Muslims to say, if that's what Islam is, I don't want any part of it. And they're coming to Jesus in, in droves, and they're not reporting that. So um, there's some interesting things going on right now in the midst of persecution.
0: We're running real low on time, and there's a lot of great questions on here. So we, they're just flooding in. So just stick around. You can stick around for
1: second service. Second service.
0: And we, we Third try service. to hit some of those. Um, Fourth service. Fifth. Ninth. We'll Beers on Monday. we will order in <laughs> pizza. Um, I, wanted, I want to ask this because I think this will end us on a hopeful note, but how serious do you think the threat is of Islam – to Christianity or to God's kingdom?
2: There is no threat. Yeah. There is no uh, uh, game over. Yeah. I mean, this has all been prophesied. We know who wins. That's why our story is that much more powerful. We just need to tell it to people who don't know it. That's how I see it.
1: Yeah, I think he. I think he's right. Um, you know, the other side of that is that um, I think that. Here's, here's what I respect about Muslims, is that they, they're not afraid to say what they believe. You can go to the Middle East, and you can have a, a conversation about religion with a Muslim anywhere, and they'd be happy to talk to you. Here, the f- two things you're not supposed to talk about around the dinner table right. are what? Politics, politics and, religion. and religion. They love talking about politics and religion because they're not ashamed of it. So I don't, see, I don't, I, I tell you what's not a threat to Christianity. Atheism's not a threat. Atheism is, is kind of just a bunch of angry people who grew up in boring churches. Um... <laughs> And they went off to, and they overpaid for college. Um, sorry, I mean, I, you know, atheism. Atheism is, atheism is. Let's suck the vacuum. Let's let's vacuum the air out of the room, and, and you know, we don't we don't have an answer. You know, our answer for something is nothing. That's not going to hold up over time. Um, so what what I what I worry about is is hundreds of millions of passionate, devout, ethical, moral, and good and decent, honorable people. Who want to serve God, who believe in God, who have a family structure, who can answer why there, who can answer why there is polygamy? Do you know the, the reason why Muslims uh, will say, will say, you know you guys, we, we, yeah, we have polygamy, and you say that that's, that's, um, that's oppressive to women, but so is throwing them up with no clothes on billboards, and so is getting them pregnant and walking away, and a guy having four baby mamas that, he, that the government's going after him to try to support, who's single, at least we marry the women that we have sex with. You know, that's, 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 their, that's their, so in their mind, they're like, you guys think we're bad? We take care of our women that we sleep with. You guys just leave them out in the street. So understand, there are answers that they have, and there are challenges, and they're passionate. So yeah, ultimately, love and grace wins. Jesus wins. We know that. But I, I, I do worry about a, uh, a large group of people who are very passionate about what they believe in and uh, coming into a culture that has, that has been very self-loathing about their roots and their background. Mm. So, I, it'll be an interesting challenge as we move ahead. But ultimately, yes, we, we do. And we have a wonderful opportunity to let people know about the grace of Jesus. First
0: off, we got a good one that just came in. Pro-life brings an innocent child into the world, but what about caring for the child once they're through, once they're here through social programs and taxes? Shouldn't pro-life mean the full life?
2: It's all you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Can we pray? Yeah. Heavenly? No. Uh, I guess, I mean, yes, is the answer to the question. Yes, absolutely. When we talk about pro-life, we're not just talking about conception. Um, we're not talking about birth. We're talking about everything that is, is, is tailored around it. Um, unfortunately... Um, sometimes we have children that are born at inopportune times, but no less because we serve a God who's pro-life, he provides. And so if we have uh, within our society um, uh, institutional governmental structures to help in the sustainment of that life, I'm always, always going to, to be for that. So yes would be the answer to that question.
1: Yeah, I guess I would add to that that um, I, 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 there's kind of a, I feel like we're trying to draw a kind of a false dichotomy here. I think that we, um, the, the church needs to, to continue to do a good job w- in terms of caring for widows and orphans, as the Bible says in James. I think sometimes, sometimes what happens is it's not that government is bad. It's that government has the tendency to depersonalize things, especially the larger that it gets. And so what happens is we go, well, there's, there's a program for those people. Um, there's, a, there's a program for these people. So I don't need to worry about them. I don't, need to, I don't need to get personally involved because I pay my taxes. And I think that's the danger sometimes is we need to be people, uh, the more the government can handle, the less role that the church gets to play in that because somebody else is handling it. Um, I, I absolutely agree with Andre. We, all life is sacred. Every single person in here would, would want to have the opportunity to live. There's not a single person in this room that wishes that they were aborted. So we have to let everybody have the opportunity to live and let that child live out that life as God intended. Um, and, and certainly there are programs and things that can happen. But we have to make sure that, that we don't just go, well, they do it, so we don't have to worry about it. I think the church needs to do a better job with adoption and connecting people with um, foster families and that sort of thing. And, uh, which, by the way, they are doing a pretty good job, too. So we can work with government on those things. Great. Uh, we just got another question. I think this would be good
0: because we've, we've had several of these. Christianity is, uh, is monotheistic. How do we explain a triune God, the idea of the Trinity? Could you give a simple explanation of the Trinity? Just <laughs> simple.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, man. <laughs> oh, man, wow. Just give it to the new guy. Um, no, no. In uh, Christian Worldview, one of the classes that I teach, we get that question a lot. And one of my approaches, to because it's hard to wrap your mind around God. Uh, There are one God, but yet in three persons. What is easier to wrap your mind around that the Bible doesn't teach is what we come to understand as modalism. A lot of times people will say that the Son and the Holy Spirit are manifestations of the Father, but that's not what the Scripture teaches either. So the way that I approach it when my students ask me that question is is think about relationships. Think about relationship. We have three distinct individuals that are in perfect harmony with one another in relationship, but have distinct roles that they play. So you have the father, right? You have the father who portrays the plan. And the plan, obviously, is to have the eternal relationship with humanity. But we mess that up. But our mess up or our sin didn't mess up that plan. And then you have Jesus who comes in and he is the perfect propitiation or payment to bring humanity back into eternal relationship with God. And then when Jesus goes back to sit on the right hand of the Father after he teaches the disciples to go out and bring that gospel, you have the comforter or the paracletos, the Holy Spirit that comes in that empowers men to continue to go forward with the message. And so you see this amazing triune relationship of three distinct persons working in perfect harmony of love so that you and I have an opportunity to have an eternal relationship. It's pretty awesome when you look at it that way. Uh, The other thing, too, is whenever we get questions, whenever you get questions
1: like this, always remember to argue the other side. In other words, it's easier to believe in the final analysis, I believe, that God is a trinity, um, or one God in three persons, then it, would believe that, then it would be to believe that God is one person as we are. Mm-hmm. Because everything in life is relationship. Everything is, everything is in relationship with something else. And so then you have a God who for all of eternity past, before he made angels, before he made humans, was, has been alone as we would be alone. So how would, how would a God even understand the concept of relationship? How would he understand love? How would he understand giving? There would be no one to give to, nothing to love, no one to speak to. Um, there would be nothing like that in existence so you have and as i've said this before you have god this picture of god is you know playing chess by himself you know make a move and then turn the board and make another move this lonely weird guy lonely weird guys tend to live in you know far away places out in the boonies all by themselves and they tend to you know have bodies hide hidden under the basement or whatever they're creepy people People that are you, you, typically lonely, loner kind of people are creepy people. And that's the image of God that you have is, is someone that doesn't know how to relate to anybody. And now he's dependent upon any, anyone that he creates. So if he makes angels, he's dependent upon them for relationship. So he can't ever get rid of them because then he'd be going back to being alone. But God is fully complete in himself. He is, he existed in perfect love with himself. Now, I don't totally understand that because I am not that. I am one single human being designed to exist in relationship that's why you and i were given the faculties of language and sight and hearing so that we could fundamentally relate to people as god does and as he has related to himself so you you are left with a much you're left with a very creepy god without the trinity in addition to everything else that that andre was saying about the relationship that god has in his plan and the way that he relates to us perfectly through the father and the son and the holy spirit
0: very good. So you heard it here. You don't want a Unabomber God. Okay. <laughs> Creepy unibomber God. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember Ravi Zacharias, he talked about how um, in creation, in all of philosophy, we see unity and diversity. We see that in creation. Things that are, are different but the same. And we, we try to explain this, and, and that's been the pursuit of all education. What's, what's the fifth essence, the quintessence? What's, what's the thing that binds all these things together? Uh, if you see, look on your coin, it says, pluribus unum, which means unity and diversity. And only in the, in the Christian faith do you have a first cause where there is unity Amen. and diversity in the Trinity. Amen. And so that's, that's, that's a great good. explanation of, of why there has to be a Trinity. <laughs> um, we have some cool stuff here. Let me, we have some funny ones here, too. But uh, how do you reconcile the, difference, the differences between what schools teach our children about creation and what you believe? We have a lot of questions on creation, old earth, new earth. Um, so maybe we can kind of dive into that. So let's, let's start with talking to your kids and, and understanding where to go from there.
1: Yeah, um, the hard part is, is, that, is that evolution is assumed now whenever, wherever you go. Now And then creation is, is mocked pretty much anywhere and everywhere. So a couple, here, here's my biggest problem with, with evolution. Well, there's, there's several. First of all, the, the fossil record, even Charles Darwin himself acknowledged in the origin of species that the biggest, in order for the evolution to be correct, you've got to have a fossil record. And you've got to have all these, these uh, the species, intermittent species between, you know, nothing and something. And the problem is you don't. And the truth of the matter is you still don't. You have hoaxes, you have bone fragments, you have, you know, one bone that was picked up here and one bone that was picked up a mile away, one bone that's in a tree and put together and assembled in as a skeleton. Most of the bones they haven't found, they just make assumption after assumption after assumption. You can make assumptions about what you think happened, but the fossil record actually shows what did happen. Now, when it comes to old earth, I, I have less of a problem with an old earth, but here's my biggest problem that I have with any of it, is I don't see how you can have death before sin. I just don't, I don't see it because in the creation story, even if God took, God took thousands of years to make, you know, a tree or whatever, at the end of it, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then it's very good after he makes man. I don't understand how you get death, decay, destruction, and, you know, flesh eating, you know, heart-wrenching kind of animals ripping each other's flesh out, and then God goes, oh, it's good, and fires, and all this kind of stuff, and and what nature really is. I don't see how how you get a world created with destruction built in, and God says it's good. So, I have a huge theological problem with it. I don't see the reason for death without sin. So, could God have created a world that was perfect and remained dormant for you know, a million years? I suppose so. But remember this. Remember that everyone's got an agenda. And it's very, it's much, it's j- as much as important as we see creationists needing a young earth, evolutionists need an old earth and a progressively older earth because it takes this much time for, for, a, for a lizard and a, for a lizard to have a lizard to have a lizard to have a lizard to have a bird. It takes a long time for that to happen. So the longer we can stretch out the age of the earth, the more it seems like our theory is correct. Because if you give enough monkeys, enough typewriters, one of them is gonna type the complete works of Shakespeare. Because of that. You've got to have an old earth. If you don't have an old earth, the whole thing is done. So there is, a, there is a bias. There is a passion for an old earth. Now, you can either see the Grand Canyon as a little tiny stream that dug into the earth over millions and millions and millions and millions of years, or you can see it as a, a tr- a, an incredibly powerful result of a worldwide flood where things happened very rapidly and massive tectonic shifts happened in the earth because the entire earth was flooded. Um, I, I, you know, I think that when people make, uh, statements like billions of years and how, you know, well, it's not two billion years, it's three billion years. And I'm going, man, and you're the same guy that can't find your car keys half the time. I, I, just, I think we have a problem. I think we have a real problem with how much we assume is true because we don't want to believe that this earth could have been caused by a, by an intentional creator God. So again, my biggest problem is death before sin. If you can answer that one for me, um, I, might be, uh, I might be more prone to believe in it. But I have a real problem with a lot of it because there's bias. And when you tell me that there's no bias and I know there's bias, that's when I don't trust you. I, I'll admit to you, I have a bias. I believe in a creator God. So I don't need to believe in all this other stuff. But when you tell me, no, I, I'm just completely objective, I don't buy it because everyone's not. No, There's no one who's completely objective. Good. Um, we have a question here, and I just love the way it's worded so...
0: If you're on the outside of this joke, I apologize. In Futurama Season 3, Episode 3, A Tale of Two Santas, Zoidberg, who plays Jesus, says, I help those who help themselves. Does Jesus let us fix our own problems, or does he intervene?
2: Oh, man, let me take that one. I had a good conversation with a family member when I was in seminary and struggling with some of these things. If we suppose that God only helps those that help themselves then I need to understand or find the man who said, I have sinned, I'm damned going to hell, God help me. That man is nowhere in the Bible. And so when we think about the premise of what grace actually is, grace or mercy, unmerited favor, all of these personal attributes that God displays were what he initiated. And so the fact that God would acquiesce himself to only limit what he wants to do in my life based on my request is not the God of the Bible. And so I always go back to my default scripture in Romans 5 eight. Yet while Andre was sinning, guess what happened? Christ died for me. And you know what? The truth be told, I didn't ask God to send Christ for me. And so, nah, God doesn't just help those that help himself. God helps everyone according to his glory, according to his plan.
0: Okay, so I'm going to bring us a different direction here a little bit. Is Islam under the same branches of Judaism and Christianity? We had a lot of questions for service regarding Islam and how it fits in and what should we do, what, how scary is it? So I want to I address this one here. Is Islam under the same branches of Judaism and Christianity?
1: I'm not an expert in Islam, uh, but I know enough about it to be able to speak someone into it. We know that Islam came out of um, it, or it claims to be an extension of or a development of the Judeo-Christian tradition, basically with a lot of changes, the biggest one meaning that Jesus is not God, Jesus was a prophet, and other kinds of things like he didn't actually die on the cross and that sort of thing. Um, the, the, the similarity would be that, that there is, it's a monotheist, they worship a monotheistic God as in Allah, but other than that there's it's very 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 different remember that we've said this before christianity differs from every other religion and including islam see islam is islam worships a god that is very capricious meaning we don't really know if he's happy or sad or whatever he he can make up things as he goes along so there really isn't God is, God, is a, God is good because whatever God does. So whatever God does, it is by definition good. So he doesn't have to do what is good for it to be good because whatever he does is good. So he could do something very bad, but it's still good because he does it. So now, the, now that might break your brain a little bit, but the reason why that's important is because you never really know if you're saved. You have to live a righteous life. But I would say the best way to put it is this, and again, this is not a denigration of Muslims that we talked about this last service, there are millions, there has to be millions of peace-loving Muslims, otherwise we would have a massive war on our hands right now. I think the vast majority of Muslims are saying, I was, I was born into Islam, I wanna raise my wife, I wanna raise my kids with my wife, I wanna have a, a, an income and a family, and I wanna live in peace with people. Just like, just like most people in America feel that way, okay? We have problems when we get into people that really wanna take certain passages very seriously. But I will tell you this, that, that Islam, um, when, when people get into the idea of, of blowing themselves up to go to heaven and everything else, understand that the idea is that blood must be shed. There's a guy who I know who's a missionary to Muslims. He says, listen, he says, blood must be shed for you to go to heaven, but not yours. The blood that was shed was shed by Jesus. Okay? You don't need to shed your blood for your family. Because some of them believe if I blow myself up that my family will be saved. We say, no, 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 you don't need to shed blood. Blood's already been shed for you. That's one way to really kind of witness to those who who feel the sense of guilt and they're trying to get rid of sin. But a a roundabout answer is like, no, other than the fact that it's monotheistic, uh, it really doesn't have um, a whole lot to do with with Christianity and Judaism. I mean, there's some things that they hold, you know, they carry through. But remember what happens in Muslim-dominated countries. You either have to to convert or pay a tax called the jizya or something like that, or you can die. So a lot of those, and, and throughout history, that's when Islam has ruled over a particular country, that's been the options for, for Christians and Jews and nonbelievers. Pay a tax, convert, or die. So that's just kind of the way it goes.
2: Great. Did you want to add anything to that, Andre? No, other than the fact and Tim hit on it, it's, it comes down to, to Jesus. Um, within Islam, Jesus is prophet with a small p and Muhammad's prophet with a big p. And to Tim's point, only one blood has truly been shed without our input. And that is the significance between Christianity and non-Christianity as it relates to Islam. They are working in order to gain merit when we know that there is no gaining of merit. It was imputed through the grace offered through the bloodshed that the Father accepted. That's in His Son, Jesus Christ. So,
0: Good stuff. Okay, so this is, this is the age-old question about the benevolence of God. How can God be good? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? How could sin ever enter the world if God is all-powerful and yet all-good? So let's go ahead and approach that topic. How can there be um, sin in the world if God
1: is all-powerful and all-good and he created it? Well, the, how could there be sin in the world is pretty simple in that God gives individuals a choice whether to follow Him or not, whether to obey Him or not. We have to say, what's the best of all possible scenarios? Is the best of all possible scenarios that God would not allow you to ever sin against Him? There's not a single person in this room that would that would, that would appreciate a God like that because every single one of us has sinned. So, and sin lives, li- uh, leads to all kinds of evil. So if you're, if you're at a bar and you've had a couple of beers and one more puts you over the edge, um, and, that, and by putting you over the edge, you then get in your car and you drive intoxicated and you wipe out a family in a minivan, which has happened. Would you want God to stop you from taking that last drink? What would you want God to do? To force your hand to, from lifting the cup up, to keep it down on the, on the bar, on the counter, to force you to stop? Would he, would you? At what point would you be screaming and yelling at God saying, God, I am, I am an, an individual I am a free moral agent, and you need to let me do what I want to do. How dare you manipulate my will to do what you want me to do? Every single person in this room, at some point or another, in some scenario, would yell those words at God. And so we have to say, at what point is it better that God allows humanity to do God's will and then to not do his will? And then what happens is we see the consequences of that. We see the consequences, and God is still glorified. Because we go, you know what? When people walk away from God, when they do things that are against God, the world is wrecked. And then we are able to see and reason that following God is appropriate. And to not follow him brings ruin and destruction
2: upon humanity. That's real. That's good talk. That's good talk. Big time. Um, one of the things that God demonstrates that, that is really important for us to understand as believers, and this is what we live by, is grace. Mercy; those things don't come um, except when we misstep or when we sin. Not to say that sin had to come, so we understand those attributes. No, that's not what I'm saying. The bigger question is, is to the question, why does God allow these things to happen? Well, if these things don't happen, God becomes less of God, because the alternative is exactly what Tim says: if He has to stop my hand from engaging in sin, then man, my God is real small, because in the greater scheme of things, He's going to stop my hand. From doing something that way. But let me ask you this when you do sin and God's there through your family, through help, and He's giving that mercy, is He bigger or is He smaller? In my world, it's always been He's bigger because even in my misfortune and my misstep, He's been there to get me back upright. So, no, that's tight.
1: Also, so what He's saying, I think, is so good is we see the beauty of God's mercy Amen. as He forgives us of our sin. And so when we, when we accuse God of saying, well, how could you allow sin, um, I think it's exactly right. We, 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 we want to put God in our own little box sure. as opposed to going, were it not for that, Amen. we would not have the understanding of the comprehensiveness of God's love and sure. His goodness, even Amen. in the midst of our sin.
0: I think one thing you have to remember, too, is uh, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, is a question that every faith and belief system has to answer and as I've looked at other systems, we really do have the, the strongest. It's not the easiest answer, but it's probably the strongest. Because if you think of, like, the, the atheist who goes, well, why is the world so messed up? You know, if there's a God, it would be fixed. Well, why do you think it's messed up if there is no God? Mm. Because your, your measurement for good and evil is gone. You don't have any rubric. You can't do anything. If, if Atman is Brahman, if everything is God, then why is some of God bad and some of God good? You know, So you... The Christians really have a great answer that kind of grapples and says, okay, the reason why there's sin is because he allows us to make choices. The reason why there's evil is because we make bad choices, and it kind of follows a line of logic that, that works. Um, one here is, is asking, does God give an opportunity for all to believe in him? And this is always what you hear, an example,
1: a person born in rural Africa, lived there the whole life. Do they have an opportunity to come to Jesus? I think the, the question really has to do with the justice of God. Um, it see, would seem unfair for God to create someone and never allow them to ever know him. So a couple of things. First of all, in Romans 1, it says that God's invisible qualities, his divine nature, and something else. Um, att- and his attributes have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. Meaning that no matter where you're born, Everybody should be able to wake up and look around and look at the trees and look at the stars, look at the sun, look at themselves, look at their family and go. I and mean, there's something, there's something really, like we came from somewhere, okay? The other side of that is that many people, especially in the Islamic world right now, where there are, where it's very, very difficult for any kind of Christian presence to find its way in. Many Muslims are, are having dreams about Jesus, and in, the, in, in their culture, to have a dream is a very powerful thing. If I have a dream, you know, to go tell me to go to Chipotle or something like that, it's like, it's no big deal. You know, I'm like, I don't know if they put a lot of stock in that because I'm going to go there anyway. Whether, there's, whether the chicken is bad or not, I don't care. I haven't gotten sick. I eat there like three times a day and I'm not sick. So get over the whole chicken scare, all right? It's fine. Um, but when they have a dream and they take it seriously and many many muslims have come to faith in jesus because god has revealed himself to them that way so i here's the thing you can rest in no one is ever going to be able to point their finger at god and say you did not treat me fairly and no one will be able to point their finger at god and say these poor people never knew but i would throw the question back on the person who asked it and said at the same time we must make very very sure that we give everybody in this world the best opportunity we can, because who are the ones that are supposed to be the ones who present God most clearly? We are. So, if you really, 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 really care, then you should be investing your resources and your time into making sure as many people know as possible. Good stuff. Um, Okay.
0: So, I got a question here about, there's a lot of questions concerning Islam and immigration and all these things, where does the gospel stand in in our current circumstances with denying people citizenship or uh, asylum?
2: Well, that's a a multi-tiered question, and I have thought a lot about it. Um, Not that I'm a Ben Carson follower by no means in that sense, but he did say something that was pretty interesting. He did say something that if, when he was asked the same question, that if people were to come into our country, he would want to know... That they would um, acknowledge what our constitution says and some of those fundamental Christian constructs, and you know what? I don't really have a problem with that because when you talk about any kind of a naturalization process, there are certain um, what's the word I'm looking for? There are certain opportunities that if you want to be a part of this country, that you have to acknowledge that this country stands on. It just, it, just, it just has to be. It's like, it's like when, when my mom was in the military, and she got orders to Belgium, and we lived in Belgium for four years, we lived under certain guidelines, under certain laws, particular to that country, and, and, and so I think the same should be applied. Now, what's going to be interesting, though, is and it's going to be a massive endeavor, is, is what that vetting process looks like for the, the non american Um, but I do think it's worth the effort because as we would take and explain who we are and what we stand for, I really believe that God and his sovereignty can work through that process because our country was built on godly things that, you know what, this whole country might turn around for Christianity just in the simple fact of going back to our roots. So I think that anybody who wants to come and be a part of this country, if there was a vetting process that we were intentional about sharing, this is who we are, God bless America, and this is why we say that, Maybe something amazing could happen. That's kind of an exciting thought.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really agree with that. And I, th- I think also we, we tend to confuse America with Christianity, and we can make a mistake when we do that. Um, just because we believe in a certain type of policy the way people coming into our country should be handled, that doesn't, that doesn't have to mean that that's the way that I personally Amen. would treat them as an individual. Amen. If they're in this country, they're our mission field. Okay, if there's a, I don't care, I've said this before, you, they come, if, if people come across the border from the south, if they're illegal immigrants, that's not my job, you know what I mean? My job isn't to check their immigration status before I, I tell them about Jesus, before I, I, I welcome them or, or do something, um, you know, kind for them. These service projects that we've done, we've probably served illegal immigrants, so why? Okay, that's not my job. Now, if you work in that field, that's your job. you got to uphold the laws of the land and everything else. We, have, we elect people that have to figure out the best way to make these things happen and keep our nation safe. I do worry about a massive influx of people coming into our, our towns who have no understanding of how this country came about or what it stands for, okay? When I was in Egypt, right after the Arab Spring, you know, I talked to several Christians, and they were all excited about how this country is going to be changed. And I said, that's great, guys. I said, I... But, man, I hope, somebody, I hope you guys have, like, a Thomas Jefferson. I hope you guys have a you, – you just can't pull a, a democratic republic, you know, out of the sky. I mean, we, we, we shed a lot of blood before we ended up where we are. And, and you, you, this, you can't just invent these things. And I think people, in, in the name of compassion, yes, we should we, – we must – we're in a mess right now because there are things – the, this, the world is an evil place, and right now with all these people flooding out of Syria, they're running for their lives, and that's a terrible and tragic thing. We have to figure out what to do with them. But to just simply say let's have compassion and welcome them into our towns when we have no idea who they are or what they want, um, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. But if they come, then guess what? They're invited to Compass Church, and they're, they're invited to be our neighbors, and we will do our very best to reach them. That, we can't do anything about that. But in terms of setting public policy, that's kind of a different deal. That we have to We have to... F- Ask people who, are, who study that stuff and understand the issues, what's the best way to go forward? Great. Um,
0: there's a lot of questions in here regarding salvation. So maybe you could just explain, what, what does it take to be saved in the, the sense that we speak about here at Compass and to keep it? Because there's a lot of questions in here in regards to that.
1: Well, you are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, not by works, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, so that no one can boast. So you can't get to heaven and say, I'm here because I did all these things. Can you imagine what a horrible place heaven would be like if you got in based on your merit? It'd be like all those people that say, you know, my student was an honor student and whatever on their bumper sticker, right? I mean, that's the whole place would be filled with people bragging about how great they are. And that's why they got into heaven. We we get into heaven because we brag about how great Jesus is. So in, 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 in a strange way, the worse you are, <laughs> the more glory God gets because of how much it took to save you. Um, but how do you keep it? Well, I don't know. How do, how, can, a, can a butterfly turn back into a caterpillar? You see, I, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's not going back. Now, that being said, we, all, I, we place a high belief on what it means to be a Christian. You know, we don't just say if you prayed a prayer when you were three years old in a Sunday school class so you can get the donut that you're a Christian. You know, like, who cares? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I believe all three of my children are saved, but you better believe I'm watching them like a hawk. Because, I, you know, I, I mean, at each, with each progressive step in your life, am I still acknowledging Jesus, you know? Um, I don't believe that you can ever lose it, but the, Peter also says, make your calling and election sure. So.
2: No, that's really good, and part of the evidence of, of salvation comes in the fruit that we bear, Um, when you look at the reference that Tim made in um, uh, Ephesians 2, um, especially verse 9, uh, Paul talks about this idea of poema, this idea of being a poem, this art piece that God has created uniquely in each of us. And, And this is the biggest thing, and this is especially to young people, especially to young people. You have a purpose, but the purpose is only found in Christ. You don't find your purpose in our world, you find it In Christ, Now, this is what's really cool. We are wonderfully, specifically, and uniquely made to carry out that purpose. And so, when we think about the meaning of life, when we think about those things, the fact that God would love me while I was an antithesis, while I was an enemy to the throne, while I was part of the reason why he was getting the nails in his hands. He said, you know what? I love you, man. I love you. And I'm going to do something with you, and so He sent His Son Jesus to take my place, and so especially for young people, understand that what you see in this world, smoke and mirrors. But if you want to really be in the game, ask God, why have You given me this talent? Why have You given me this passion? And how can I best serve You with it? That's the real game. And I absolutely, and I think that. We have to stop asking
1: the question, well, we don't have to stop asking the question, but we have, rather than always saying, can I lose my salvation, can I lose my salvation, just keep following Jesus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, you know, I let my membership lapse because I didn't pay my dues, and so I'm out of the club. Yeah. That's not the way it is. I, I just, I, it's a life of following Jesus, and, and that's really what, what's, what's at, at the issue here, and because you have a purpose for your life, and so... Um, yeah, any kind of I can lose my salvation then lends itself to this idea that somehow um, I've earned it to begin with.
0: That's really unique to the Christian faith, as you kind of shared on the Christmas Eve. Is what's unique to us is grace. Every other system set up, you have to obtain it. You have to work at it. Christianity is the only one that says, you know what saves you? Not you, but something outside of you. God made a way for you, and he, his, his blood, like you, you said your friend shared, yeah, blood has to be shed, but it's not yours. Amen. There was another question asking in regards to the Old Testament. How did somebody get saved
2: in the Old Testament you know, before Jesus? That's a good question. I'm kind of an Old Testament guy, so I love that question. It's by faith. Simple as that. It's a faith looking forward to the Messiah and his coming, just as we look back and acknowledge the truth that he came. It's the same thing, faith.
0: That's good. Uh, we are about out of time. Um, maybe we can, we can kind of close with some type of um, end times question, because we have a lot on that. What, uh, you know, if you want to make any date predictions, that'd be great. Uh, but maybe send us off with some hope. How does the story end? Are we in the end times? What, w- maybe you could throw a little bit of thoughts out there.
1: Every generation of Christians since the ascension of Jesus believed they were in the end times. Every generation of Christians could list evidence to make their case that they were in the end times. Um, People have thought that the Pope is the Antichrist. People thought Hitler was the Antichrist, which, by the way, at the time, seemed pretty reasonable. World domination coming out of Europe, everything else, persecuting the Jews. I mean, it's all there. Um, so, are we in the end times? I have no idea. I, I actually, it kind of makes me happy to think of the world going on a few more hundred years and getting a lot better before it gets worse. I, I, I worry about people that always think the world's getting worse because they live like that and they tend to barricade themselves and protect themselves from the world and they start storing food. And I, I, I mean, I'm, if you do that, I'm not trying to put you down, I just, the, the problem is, is it's very reactionary and it's, 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 a lot of it's done out of fear. I'm not saying you shouldn't have, like, a supply of something in case there's a natural disaster or, you know, they shut down the power grid for a few weeks or something like that. I'm talking about this apocalyptic kind of scenario that everybody, through all time, and what happens, you waste a lot of time worrying about that, and then you get really old, and it never happened. And then you get disappointed. In the early 90s, and my father, who's in the service, I have to give him a little bit of street cred here, my father, I was very angry at him. Because in the early 90s, when I was 18 years old, we elected um, Bill Clinton, and all my Christian friends said, he's the Antichrist, 2000's coming, and it's the end of the world, right? We elected a Democrat in the White House. And this is what a lot of people that I ran with thought, and there's gonna be this, you know, the the, the Eurozone's coming and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, this is it. I just said, you know, please, God, can I just have a wedding night before you come back and that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) Sorry. But my father got on the radio... And, and I'll never forget, and I was, I was thinking, Dad, you're going to get on there, and you're going to talk about how this, you know, this, you know, get ready, here comes the end of the world. And he gets up, and he goes, on the radio, on Christian radio, and he says, you know, he says, uh, there's a lot of people upset and worried about the end of the world, but I actually think that we could have a real great next four years, next eight years, potentially. I just think we just don't need to worry about these things and trust God. And I was so mad at him, like, how could you say that? Don't you see the world's coming to an end? And if you look at the 90s, um, you know, George Will called it the vacation from history. Uh, it's like one of the greatest years of economic development and peace around the world. And, and we had an amazing eight years, uh, despite some of the things that were lurking on behind the scenes that, that kind of happened later on. But it, it wasn't bad. And so to, to, to answer that question is, could Jesus come back at any time? Yes, I believe he could. However, the best prophetic verse ever is not found in Revelation, I believe. It's found in... is it Matthew or Luke? I think it's Luke chapter 24, where Jesus says, and the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, well, so, you know, I'm going to get on my little Israel watch, and my Iran watch, and my terrorism watch, I'm going to get this feed, I'm going to be watching for every little tiny bomb that goes off, and going, well, is it going to come this year, is it going to come next year, is it going to come next I mean, holy cow, the first time I came to this church, some lady grabbed me in the lobby and told me that Disneyland was going to blow up in 2012. I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to become a pastor of this place? And so, um, it, and so she's like, don't go there. You know, and so we have these ridiculous predictions, they never come true, alright? Understand that when is Jesus going to come back? When when he sees that every people group, every ethne, every people group, not every country, but every people group that they, we don't know what the people groups is, people groups are, but every every ethnic group that God has deemed hears and has the opportunity to hear. Once every ethnic group has been reached with the gospel, then the end will come. That's what Jesus says. So if you want to hasten the end, then get out there and let people know about Jesus. That's how we bring in the end. We don't huddle, we don't hunker down, and we don't get excited when bombs go off in Beirut. We, we say, how can more people know? And we say, may Natha, come, Lord Jesus. World, you know, is he not in control of all things? How does that work?
2: Well, in the uh, creation account, um, there's this word called volition. And volition is a is capacity to make a choice. And so we know as we look at Genesis 3, we know that after God had created everything, everything was good. He gave him an the instruction not to eat from a certain tree. And in the freedom that he gave them to make a choice, they chose to disobey. That capacity is what we come to know as volition. One of the things that we don't remember a lot is is that when we make choices against God, there are ramifications or consequences for those choices. Um, In my Christian Worldview class, I kind of break it down in this kind of a, a formula. Evil was not a creation of God. It's what spurred in the heart of humanity when they chose to disobey God. Now, when that motive of the heart is acted upon in the physical, we come to identify that as being sin, or as the Bible says, a misstep. And so because sin has become, because of the evil that resonated within the hearts of humanity as they chose not to follow God's instruction, we have everything being cataclysmically changed, i.e. creation itself. And so when we talk about God allowing suffering and evil, we've got to be very careful to say, God, it was your fault, because when we go back and look at the account of what happened, we just see that, wait a minute, we got some significant culpability in this thing. Now what has God done in light of what we've messed up? So that's how we've got to approach it.
1: You also have evil can be broken up into two ways, natural evil and moral evil. Moral evil is, you know, Hitler, bin Laden, uh, child molesters, those kinds of people. And you could say, well, why would God not prevent them from doing things? But then you also have to ask yourself, um, would you want God preventing you from doing the evil that you have done? And the answer is probably no. We have the capacity um, to do great evil on this planet. We have the capacity to walk away from God. And we have the capacity to observe that great evil has been done and say, wow, when you walk away from God, as Andre was sharing, terrible consequences happen. But you also have natural evil. You know, uh, a an earthquake or a tsunami happens and wipes out 250,000 people. Um, what about that? that? When natural evil occurs, it reminds us that we live in a fallen and broken world. This is not heaven. And the fact that you identify it as evil, the fact that you identify it as, as a problem means that you are, in your heart, you are built for a world where that does not exist. And so you have to say, why is it that I see a problem with nature? Could it be that there's something flawed with nature? And if there is something flawed about nature, why is it that I feel it should be different? And it's in that gap that we can say that we were made for, as C.S. Lewis said, we were made for another world. And that should lead us to the pursuit of God. Um, That is really why evil can actually be not as an argument against God, but actually an argument in favor of the existence of God. Because as Gabe shared in the last service when this question was asked, again, C.S. Lewis put at this point, that what is evil without God? There's no such thing because there's no standard. Why is murder wrong? If, you, if you, See, the relativist, the person that says, do whatever you want to do as long as you think it's okay to do it, you know, if it's your truth is your truth. Well, if my truth is killing you, then it's not really evil for me to do that. Um, it might be evil to you, but you don't really matter because there's no objective truth. So the very recognition of a universal evil, like that's wrong. Is evidence that there is an objective standard, which then is evidence for an objective standard creator, that is God. Very good.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a question that not only Christians have to answer, but every worldview has to answer, because we all experience evil and we don't know what to do with it. So even the atheist has to answer the question, why is there evil, and he has to try to come up with a way to say the words evil, because he doesn't have the tools or the rubric to do that. Uh, every, every worldview has to answer that question. So that's not just a hard question for the Christian. It's a hard question across the board. And I think really Christianity has the best answer because it, it actually follows a thread of logic. Sin is in the world because of choices we made. Evil's in the world because of sin. So very good. Uh, there's a question here. How do we reconcile the differences between Mormonism and Christianity, or how can we best differentiate ourselves? I think really this this comes from a heart where it goes, a lot of times you, you meet Mormons who claim, hey, we're Christians, you're Christians. Is there a difference? And if so, what are those differences?
1: The difference is and always will be Jesus. As simple as that. If you get Jesus right, the rest is details. If you get Jesus wrong, you open a Pandora's box where it's a never-ending catastrophe of all kinds of things that rules and regulations and everything else. The biggest difference between Mormonism and Christianity is not the trappings, you know, the certain, not the ancillary stuff, the outside. It is we believe that Jesus is God. They do not. And everything else flows out from there. So whenever you have a conversation with a Mormon or Jehovah Witness, do not get caught up in the things they throw at you that are designed to get you off track. Always bring it back to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus?
0: I think that leads us into a good segue um, because there's been a couple questions today asking about what is the trilogy? Why is there a trilogy? Trinity? It says trilogy on here. Sorry. Trinity. Is it Star Wars question? It's it's a uh, Lord of the Rings. No. The Trinity. How do we have a... We we claim to be monotheistic, but we, we claim to have a triune God. How does that play out in things?
2: One of the ways I deal with that question quite a bit in the uh, Christian worldview when I deal with my students is is a lot of times, and and it's funny because after, let's start with this. After the last message, I had uh, somebody approach me and said, you know, Andre, uh, one of the ways that I've come to understand the Trinity is look at H2O. And so I've heard the H2O metaphor before, but it goes a little something like this. With H2O, basic water, we can have steam, right? And we can have ice, right? The problem with that metaphor is, is that the steam and the ice are just manifestations of, of the water itself. The Trinity, we have one God and three separate and distinct persons who carry out distinct roles. The modalists will say the ice metaphor was the right metaphor. They will say that, well, from God the Father, we have, we have the Son, and then we have the Holy Spirit. But our scripture doesn't teach us that. Our scripture teaches that they're actually distinct. In fact, when we look back at Isaiah and his prophecy, we talk about God being pleased to crush the head of his son. When we look at the son, the son was like, not my will, but thy will. But then when we look at the Holy, or, or the Holy Spirit, when the disciples were like, well, master, when you leave, who's going to be here? He says, I've got to go so that the paracletus or the comforter will come. And so even within the harmony of the Trinity itself comes distinct personhood. And that is the only way that I can even begin the conversation, because I can't even fully explain what I just said. But what we do know the Trinity is not, is it's not water that turns into steam or an ice cube.
1: The other thing, too, is we make the assumption that God must be like us. And so we get tripped up on the Trinity because we go, well, we're not three persons in one. Um, now, people say, well, I'm a father, and I'm a husband, and I'm a son, but that's still, I'm still one person. I play different roles. As Andre said, there's three distinct persons, okay? And the, the main thing that you, is also important here is to understand the, the uh, whole issue of relationship. If God was like you and I for eternity past, that means he would have spent the massive majority of eternity being alone. How would he know what love is? How would he know what communication is? How would he know what uh, any kind of relationship? He wouldn't even have the language for that. He wouldn't have the understanding of that. He would have to be able, he would, and by the way, he would also become dependent upon his creation. Anything he made would be so he could fulfill a need. But that makes God dependent on something. We know that God is not dependent on anything or anyone. God is fully complete in himself. God has full, full, the full capacity to love and be content with Him, just, just himself. And so, the problem is you end up with a God, if he's just one, who is kind of creepy. You know, I mean, people that hang out by themselves for long periods of time, you know, their fingernails grow long, and they grow their hair, and they, they're off by themselves like they get a bomber. You know, just weird people. You have a, you have a guy, who's an old crusty guy who plays chess by himself, and, you know, you just have a strange kind of individual who doesn't really have the capacity. But God created us not out of a need, but out of his abundance of his love. Out of the reality, all he wanted to do was simply show the love. And by the way, we were created for relationship. The reason you and I are one and not three is because we're not God. But we were created for relationship. That's why we have language. That's why we have sight. That's why we have the ability to hear. Even in science, everything is relationship to one another. The atoms and molecules all relate to one another. The butterfly effect, as has been told, one thing relates to everything in the universe is about relationship. Why then would God not be? So rather than making, you know, the, like, well, God, how can you believe that God has three persons? Well, show me something that's not in a relationship of some kind or another. Very good.
0: Um, there is, in Christianity, there's the symbol of the cross. Why is the cross the symbol we hang on to if it's a torture device? Or do we hang on to that symbol?
1: Well, I've heard of people that think that we should have the, the uh, tomb, and they actually sell, like, when it's supposed to crosses, they make a little tomb. The problem is kind of hard to figure because it kind of looks like a little rock you know and it's like what's that well, that's the tomb so it you know the tomb is a cool symbol as well um, but the cross has been looked at as as the remembrance of what it took for me, for me to be forgiven so I think that's why people hang on to it I Agree. <laughs> all right uh, here's a fun one were
0: there two of every dinosaur on the ark
2: I think it goes to looking at um, how you literally um, would interpret that section of scripture back in the Old Testament. It is my personal belief that there were baby animals all over the ark. That's how I interpret this scripture, that there would be baby animals, one of, there would be two genders, one male, one female, God saw fit to have whatever animals he wanted on the ark on there. And so that's my understanding of the animals on the ark.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a baby dinosaur. <laughs> that would make the most sense, you know. Yeah. And if you have a uh, if you have a world, I mean, I, to me, I look at the world and I see evidence of a flood. I mean, I see jagged cliffs and rocks and I see you look at Southern California where I grew up, you have all these patterns of boulders over like near San Diego. Then you have the same kind of pattern over where I grew up in San Fernando Valley. But you have the same pattern like in Oklahoma somewhere. Um, it's bizarre. It's bizarre how how similar some of these. And it's like how in the world could that have just happened? And it, it looks, you go to certain places and it, it looks like something really crazy happened there. It doesn't look like gradual little you know, smooth shaping because there's jagged cliffs and rocks. I, I've, I look at the world as an aftermath of the flood. I look at it as the waters receded and we inhabited the earth, and there's some, looks like, man, something crazy happened here. Um, again, that's very countercultural because a lot of people say there's no way it happened, but every civilization has evidence of a world flood of some kind. Christianity is the only one that attached some kind of meaning to it um, as opposed to just the gods got mad and flooded the earth.
0: There's been a lot of questions here concerning this every service, so I'm going to bring it up. How should we as Christians respond to the Muslim-Syrian refugee hatred and anger, oftentimes coming from other Christians?
2: Well, that's kind of two-tiered. Um, the first part of that, dealing with other Christians, is we should call them to remember what Christ told, told us, right? Uh, when the Pharisees tried to ensnare him with the question, uh, what are the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? The ensnare of the question, the premise was off, but his answer was profound the first one, love the Lord thy God with all, everything. And then the second is love your brother as yourself. And all the commandments were wrapped up into those two. And so for the Christian, I would call my brother or my sister to recall that section of scripture, Matthew 22, I believe, 37 through 39, and just remember that grace abounds. As it relates to the, the, the Muslim, those of the Islam faith, I would extend brotherly love at the same point, because just like Pastor Tim was saying earlier, we've got radicalism in all faith backgrounds. And so just because we see the radical behavior of a few don't marginalize the whole group, because we as Christians have a history of being marginalized that way. So once again, who are we to perpetuate that behavior to someone else? Again, again, I'm not the one that determines who my brother is. It's Christ who determined that I should see everyone as my brother, amen?
1: You know, and then at the same time, we talk about public policy. Um, there, I think there are people out there who would, in fact, one brilliant article was written by a guy named Eric Metaxas. And anything Eric Metaxas writes, you should read, by the way. It's just fantastic stuff. He has a radio program out, and he's written several books. But, you know, one of the points that was made was the fact that a lot of these Syrian refugees, the assumption is that they want to be resettled in the United States. Not all of them do. Um, a lot of them kind of, if you think about it, if you, would you want to be shipped off to another country? Now, obviously, if there was war and violence, you would be. But let's deal with the problem of trying to, what's going on in those countries? How can we figure out how to stop that so they can go back and live where they were born and enjoy the culture that they came from? So it's a little bit, uh, you know, I'm going to call it ethnocentrism to say, well, you know, we should just let everybody in here because they're going to want to come over here. These people have been displaced, and it's a very sad thing. But at the same time, I think we have to ask the question, what is best from a public policy standpoint? We let in hundreds of thousands of people who have no idea what America is about, how we live, what, what we're doing, and um, without any real vetting process. So that's, that, but that's different than what Andre is saying, how I treat my brother. And so we talk about hatred. I'm not sure, for, for me to say, like for example, and I'm not saying that I, I believe this per se, but if I was to say, just for sake of argument, I don't believe that we should have a lot of, I don't, I don't believe that we should have open borders when it comes to um, Syrian refugees. I, maybe I say I don't believe that. That doesn't mean that I hate them. It means that I'm concerned about the effect that that might have on the country o- overall, because I have a concern about my country. At the same time, if they're in here and they come in and they, they work next door and their kids go to my school and that kind of thing, then I, I, they're my brother and I, and I love them. Remember this, guys. Whatever happens with all of this, remember that you don't have to become a missionary and move to another country anymore. You are a missionary because the world's coming to you. It is coming to you. So you better know what you believe, and you better learn to practice the principles of the kingdom. But that's different from saying, can we, before we react to a crisis, and can we think this thing through and make sure we know what we're doing effectively here? Because there are, uh, there are risks and challenges along with that. So
0: I think, too, we live in a culture... Where we label people haters or hate groups just because they disagree, like the moment you say uh, I'm gonna vote this way, or I'm, you you make a judgment on that. Well, you hate them then. It's 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 like to me when I I'm trying to discipline my five-year-old and I say, Hey, you need to clean up. You hate me. You know it's like no, you need to clean up your room. Like that's I love you. <laughs> like. But because I don't want to do what you want to do, and I don't want to say what you're doing is okay, that, that reflects on how I care for you and how I feel about you. That's not one and the same. And I think we live in a culture where you, you have to be politically correct, and you can't disagree with anybody. If you disagree, then you hate that, that person.
1: And I think it's, it's, it's almost like, can we, say that the, can we say that the immigration situation is complicated? Can we say it's very, very complicated? It's very, very difficult, and there are no easy answers. I, that's my belief. I think I don't think there's any easy answers. I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do about it. I do know I'm supposed to love my brother. I also know that there are people who want to come to this country who have a very different agenda about what it is supposed to be. That doesn't mean they want to blow me up, but, but it means that they have, a, they have a way of looking at life. They have absolutely no experience with what a, a democratic republic looks like. None. And so to come in, what assumptions are they bringing with them? They, because if you make them a voting citizen, you just know that, that your culture is going to change. And if you're okay with that, that's fine. But just know that the, out, of, out of well, we have to love everybody and we have to serve everybody, just know that there, there, there will be some sort of price that will ultimately be paid for that. So we have to we have to just, before we call people haters and before we exclude or include anybody, let's just all step back and say, this is a complicated, difficult issue. But we do believe that no matter what, If the person is here, they are my brother. I need to treat them as such. And by the way, there is a tremendous opportunity for the gospel in any time you get around anyone who does not know it. Okay, I'm going to take us a slightly different direction
0: here. Uh, By slightly, I mean very. Do you think reincarnation
2: exists? All right, so uh, the new guy will take this one. Um, Do I believe reincarnation exists? And so I'm going to presume that the definition is is that um, there's a capacity in which the way that God created me, I did not fulfill it or possibly he made a mistake, therefore I get another chance in this world. That's the premise of how I'm defining reincarnation. If that's my premise, the answer is absolutely not. I do not believe in reincarnation at all.
1: In an earlier life, I was Shirley McLean. <laughs> no, the, the, yeah, exactly. Um, there's no biblical evidence for this. And really, it's kind of, kind of your own hell, really. It's, it's a form of hell. Because you don't know who you are. And why is it that everybody was reincarnated? They, were all, they always used to be somebody famous in an earlier, earlier life. You know what I mean? Like, I was George Washington. Like, why you? Um, so, so first of all, you have no idea where you, what you were before. And you have no idea what you're going to be after. So you just go around and around and around and around and around for no real reason at all. And what, it, and what it, by the way, reincarnation sounds like this kind of, you know, sophisticated, oh, I believe in reincarnation. Do you know what, you know what people actually believe in reincarnation? Do you know what happens to their societies? Do you know that India could feed the world seven times over with the amount of food that it produces? Why are their children starving in India? Because they believe in reincarnation. Because they, don't, they won't kill the rats and they won't kill the cows because they're somebody's uncle. And so the rats eat the food and the children starve. That's reincarnation for you. See, only in America do we have the luxury of believing things that we don't actually act upon, and then we can reap the benefits of things we don't believe in. Okay? So we reap, we reap the benefits of a Judeo-Christian framework that allows us freedom and, you know, some sense of intelligence. Um, then what happens is, we, but then we can go off and say we, we, we can tout the ideals of something like reincarnation because we have to actually live in a place in which it is practiced. You live in a world like that. It is a cruel and awful and horrible place because humanity is denigrated because everything now is some other kind of form of life and it is an awful, terrible thing. Now, there are parts of India that are becoming better. Why? Because they're leaving behind those ideas and embracing more Western ideas of you know, industrialization and economic development. But where, you have, where, you, where reincarnation rules the day, you have nothing but destruction.
0: I really like Andre's definition of it because that's really the the traditional definition of reincarnation it's i wasn't good enough so i need another shot which really eliminates grace because grace is that yeah you're not good enough you don't need another shot jesus is enough so if you if you need another shot you're going to need a million and it's never going to the loop will never end because you cannot be good enough
2: there's no hope of being in god's presence because the earth is all there is let me get better so I can be better in this place. But what about the fallen nature of the earth? Let's talk about that. Is the earth reincarnated as well? I mean, it doesn't stop if you go along that path of reincarnation. Right.
0: Um, we have some questions here. Okay, let me see. This, I think this one's really good. It's very personal. Is it normal for a Christian to be passionate for Jesus for a moment and then during the week or so not be with it changing all the time?
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yes. Um, just being transparent I'm more passionate about Jesus when I have to prepare a sermon because I'm in the word the word is in me it's tearing me up and then I get to speak on it and so that idea of fellowship is the only answer to staying within passion for Jesus it's the community of believers being together i.e. the ecclesia the called out ones as we spurn one another while we see the day approaching never to forsake the gathering
1: you're going to have emotional highs ups and downs you can't base your faith on that the old there's an old illustration of a train in the locomotive you have facts these are things we know to be true right behind that we have faith we put our faith in the facts and then our feelings are the last car and the feelings follow the faith so the feelings faith and facts the problem is, if you put feelings in the front and you expect feelings to always be the thing that you base your faith on, a lot of churches do that. A lot of churches, their goal is to get you all fired up, give you like a shot of adrenaline, then you go out, and then by Tuesday you're, but then you come back again on Sunday and you get another shot. Uh, we want to give you doses of, of scripture and truth, but see, I want I want my feelings to be informed by what I, I see. I'm not I'm moved by emotion when I when I discover new things about God. You know, I think all three of us are that way. You know I'm not I don't go in and try to try to manufacture a feeling and then come up with a truth out of that. I don't I don't trust my feelings that much.
0: Yeah, your feelings are made to be indicators like gauges on a dashboard. And that doesn't mean they're correct. You have to look at that and then see what's going on. And I think when we think about being a disciple of Christ, you have to remember that's that's about discipline. And you don't always feel th- like this, but you you just push forward and you keep going and it's a result of a long progression, right? It's, it doesn't have anything. We're not talking about salvation or anything like that in between. But following Jesus, there are times where it's dark, and there's times where you're on top of the world, and God's with you regardless. So, um, We've got a lot of questions about heaven, so we're going to spend some time talking about that a little bit here. Will our sinful desires be removed in heaven?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there is no lacking in heaven. If we look at what our simple desires spurn from, it'd be spurned from an idea of an area where we're lacking, right? Um, an area that we want to appease or a desire that we might have to fulfill. There is nothing in the presence of God as such.
0: Where do we as Christians go for heaven? Is heaven another place or is heaven here on earth?
1: Well, I think it's important. Heaven is absolutely another is another place. Um, we know the final state will be a new heaven and a new earth. The reason we get tripped up sometimes is because sometimes it's because we we, we don't have a proper understanding of the new earth. You know, um, Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Heaven. I think it is the best book on the subject. You have to read that book before you die. You really do, because you'll get a preview. And I think it's it's so grounded in Scripture. It's not one of these kind of crazy. Some guy went to heaven and saw you know. Peter and came back and wrote about it. This is actually just grounded in, in Scripture. And um, heaven is, now, will we go to an intermediate state before the new heavens, the new earth? The Bible seems to indicate that we will. It will be a place of, of paradise, a place of peace. Um, but we will, we will have new bodies. See, all of this fits together. The resurrection of Jesus, the reason why he had to have a new body is because that he's the first fruits, the forerunner, the preview, the beta uh, of, of what we are going to be someday. It's, you know, it's kind of weird to think about spinning all of eternity in like a psychedelic blob kind of trance state, you know, like a big giant kaleidoscope with leprechauns running around and, you know, like 60s kind of music playing in the background. Um, there's actually going to be a very, it's going to be very much like earth except without all the sin and corruption and death and destruction and everything else. It's going to be the new, the new heavens and the new earth. So, you know, terra firma, you will have, um, there will be three dimensions at least. You know, I had a seminary professor that said that, that all of your senses will likely be enhanced. So you could see music and hear color and those kinds of things. It's kind of cool to think about, but, but there will be an elevated sense of everything. Um, but, but it will, will not be fundamentally different than how God created us from the beginning.
0: Do we believe that our loved ones become angels when they die?
2: That's a real good question. Um, the way I would approach that question is, is through the idea of functionality. Um, my Bible tells me I'm specifically wonderfully made, um, which is differentiated than a heavenly host who have their own roles. Um, so I'm not sure that in God's presence I would want to be an angel. I'd want to be the Andre that he intended me to be.
1: Dude, I love that answer because I was just going to say no.
2: <laughs>
1: and he did a really good job answering that. It's like so Tim with the professor up here. Tim
0: has wings and a little halo and he, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> we a harp. Uh, well, by the way, it's, it, says, it says that uh, we will judge angels. That's, uh, that's what the scripture says. I don't understand how that, that, what that's about, but that's pretty crazy. We are actually, and by the way, we will be in a higher status than angels because we've been redeemed. We've been, the angels have not been seated at the right hand. You know at the right hand of Christ in the heavenly places see in the heavenly places where Christ is at the right hand of God is what it says angels aren't aren't given that status Ain't no one ever no one ever died for the angels um, Jesus died for us and we've been given sonship and daughtership angels have not so you, I don't think you as he was saying I don't think you want to be an angel my
0: son wants to know if there will be sports in heaven because how can you win unless someone makes a mistake but if we are perfect how can we make a mistake He's very sad about no football. I'll tell you this. There will be no football on Sundays. No, I'm
1: just kidding. That's right. <laughs> that's right. The NFL will move to Monday and Tuesday. Yeah.
2: No. Man, that's, let, me, let, me take a, let me take a stab at yeah. that because I've, I've honestly that's thought awesome. about that a lot. Um, okay, so when I was a younger guy, if you threw the ball just right, I could dunk it. I couldn't take it up by myself because my hands are small. But in heaven, I'm sure I can do 360 Tomahawks. That's just where I'm at. That's my belief. I believe that, put it to you this way, um, the limitations my body has now, I don't think they will be in heaven. Um, and so if that means there's a hoop in a the basketball, then, oh, well, you know what I'll be doing.
1: No, I think there will absolutely be sports in heaven, and, the, and, and there, there, there has to be. God made us physical creatures. And the other thing, too, is the question about competition, you know, winners and losers and that sort of thing. Remember that... that Losing, like if Andre and I play basketball, I'm probably going to lose. Okay? Um, now on earth, my sinful nature, w- when I lost, the message would be, you, you are worthless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you lost. Um, you, you are no good. You are a failure. You lost. That's would be the message I would get. So I'd be angry at him. It's usually because of the words that he says. Yeah. After he would game. go, you lost. <laughs> and then he in turn would be prideful. Thinking I won, I'm great, I'm the best. You know, I'm on top of the world. So, um, winning and losing in heaven will be redeemed. Do so you ever lost something and then gone? You know what? Even though I lost, um, man, I'm just glad I I'm, I'm glad I played. You know, my my uh, my son, um, they played play, played soccer. They won their first game, they lost their second game. Um, but the way that the team played um, that that beat them, um, they were a much older team. They kind of recognized that. And so, um, you know, our team lost graciously. They won graciously. They came up afterwards. Hey, good job, good job. And there was a sense of even though we lost, we we played our best. I don't know about you, but I would love to be able to play a sport against one of the greatest athletes in the world and still lose, but get the opportunity to play against them and and get, and get coached by them and develop and, and if nothing else, be like be in, be in awe of the talent God gave them because then God gave God's given me a talent too. You know, and, and people will, will come in, and I and will be able to share my talent. So I think winning and losing will have a redemptive quality to it that it is not now. It won't mean that you're a failure or a lower form of life. It will just be pure fun. And I think that there's absolutely, please, whoever you are, tell your, tell your, your son, yes, there will be sports, and there will be fun. There will be no injuries either, and that will be a good thing, too. Nobody on the DL, you know. Or concussions. Is there a purgatory? No. <laughs> There can't be, there can't be. Um, purgatory is seen as a spiritual rehab. Um, how can you be? How can you be rehabilitated outside the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, how can well, you become better away from God? Really? No. You you, you would you'd only become worse. Um, there purgatory does not exist. Um, it is a it is an invention of man. And by the way, if purgatory did exist, then it really wouldn't be that big of a deal because even if you spent 10,000 years there, eventually you no, know you're going to the big place. But you're going to get better in a, in, a, in a place of punishment. You're going to get somehow, re- when you have no, uh, no it doesn't, it, it makes no sense at all. It's, it's unbiblical, by the way, too. There's nothing in the scripture about it. Um, there, once, you are there, once, you, once you die, you go where you go.
2: That seems, that idea seems to have a, kind of permeated from the idea of Sheol, um, the idea of, uh, um, kind of Abraham's bosom is what the scriptures refer to it. Kind of the place where either you're with Christ for an eternity awaiting his judgment, or you're not with him. And that was a reference Tim made earlier. That's, there's no such thing as purgatory.
0: And wouldn't that do away again with grace? The grace wasn't enough, so you, you got to get a second shot. And that's the point is, you know, there's no more shots. There's just the cross. That's it. And so it diminishes the power of the gospel and grace. Um. Again, here along those same lines, you know, this, this probably will be answered the same way. Is there such thing as karma?
2: Karma's an interesting one. Um, karma in the, the secular perspective of what goes around comes around, that's not what the Bible communicates. The Bible does not communicate that if I have a negative action there's going to always be negativity perpetuated on me although we sometimes see those things well what about the positive and and i think when i think about it, i think of some understandings of tithing although some believers would never say this some believers believe that when we tithe this is an investment in god so i tithe in god so that he can give me more back Well, is not that a form of karma and so the reality is is that all i know is that god is gracious towards us and i know that not only does he give me or respond to my obedience, but he also blesses me even when I'm disobedient. And so in no way do I believe in karma. I don't think it's um, linear uh, according to what the Bible teaches. And so, no, I'm not a fan of that at all. And
1: again, people that believe in karma and reincarnation will turn around and say that Christianity is judgmental. Karma is unbelievably judgmental. Unbelievably judgmental. Now, we, we camp on grace. <laughs> the, uh, I'm sur- I am so glad that karma uh, did not fall upon me <laughs> with the stuff that I did as a teenager because I, sh- I do not deserve to be where I am. So I- I'm living proof that karma does not exist.
0: Yeah, again, it just I remember I was in the line at the grocery store, and there was the lady in front of me and the, the lady running the cash register, and they were talking, you know, donate to the children's hospital one dollar you know this this sort of thing and they're like yeah i believe in karma so i'm gonna give this one like that's gonna make up for whatever things you've done you know the one dollar to the children's hospital and then i'm up next and they're both standing there because they're still talking and she's like you're gonna and i'm like no i'm, I'm not gonna give today and go well don't you believe in karma i'm like no i believe in grace you know like this is where i get real cynical and probably not that fun to be around but <laughs> i'm just like no if, if I had to pay for the amount of things that I've done wrong, I'm, I'm in trouble. Like, I can't—I don't have enough money, and I don't have enough good deeds, time to pull off these good deeds. So I, I believe that, that my sin has been atoned for. And it, it's kind of what Tim said. You, you can't get Jesus wrong. The moment you get Jesus wrong, that's where things go haywire, and we're, we start working for our own salvation, and we're in trouble.
1: These are great questions, though. They yeah. really, I'm so glad you guys are asking these.
0: Okay, but I think— th- they, they kind of ask, well, is it like reap what you sow? And I think karma in the, the religious sense is not. I mean, there, there, is, there isn't karma in the sense that you can atone for what you've done, but we do live in a cause and effect world. So you, you make bad choices, there's going to be bad consequences, right? Your choices have consequences.
1: But see, even there, there there's an example where, where that's, a, that's a good... But not always, yeah. Yeah, that's a good truth. But taken too far, you know, who manages that? You know, that's the thing. Well, someone has to be the one to, there's some kind of force that kind of, no, I mean, yeah, if you, if you do, if you live a life of bad decisions, you will have bad consequences.
0: We're about out of time, um, and these are really good, um, and there's a lot here. And I think what we'll do is we'll keep the email open, um, which is questions at Compass Church. That info or questions at compasschurchaz.com. And you can continue to send those in. I mean, we're just out of time, and it goes by really fast as we get going. But I wanted to grab one more here. Okay, that's a funny one, but I won't do that one. All right. It's a, where do my dogs go when they die? uh, I'll tell you where cats go. Yeah. We all know where those go. Um. Let's, we had a couple questions on this, and let's see if we can bring this around. But um, can you speak on the gifts? So what's our stance on speaking in tongues or prayer languages? And maybe you can break those two down.
2: Yeah, there are uh, two words in, uh, in the Bible when it comes to the speaking of tongues. In the Tower of Babel um, scenario, the uh, Hebrew word was jibber-jabber, Okay. Uh, but then there's what happened on the day of Pentecost, which was actual language that was being witnessed. Um, Then there's the the spirit man language. Um, Romans 14, Paul does an amazing job at pretty much explaining the gift of tongues. There's a lot of churches, a lot of pastors that don't want to touch it, but pretty much this is the deal. The gift of tongues, when executed properly, edifies the church of believers in a communal setting or a church service. If Pastor Tim is ever up here preaching and someone breaks out in a gift of tongues, he could very easily say, does anyone understand what he or she is saying? And if the answer is no, brother or sister, please be seated, you're out of order. And so when we talk about the gift of tongues, Paul tells us in 14 of Romans that pretty much it's for the edification of the body, the body of believers. Now in an individual, when you're by yourself and you're speaking in your spirit man language to God, i.e. tongues, then that's very plausible. But there are specific rules to that. And no, I wouldn't say that that gift is done away with like some faith believe. It's just there are rules to when it's used to glorify God in the church. Yeah, I,
1: I, I think it sees so right on. Um, I haven't experienced that myself. Um, I haven't experienced. I've, I've, I've been in situations where, you know, I've been in churches where they've said, if you want to speak in tongues and, you know, pray and ask God. And I, and I did and, and nothing happened. I don't feel a deficit from that um so it's it's where it's it's where it has its place i'm i'm also not going to say that, that that tongues don't exist i i don't i can't argue someone else's experience if someone comes up and says they speak in tongues i'm going to say great you know i'm not going to say no you didn't um i i, I think that that it kind of goes back to that issue of of facts and faith and feelings i think that the problem is when any aspect of our faith gets elevated above the word and above um jesus to the point where there are churches out there that tongues becomes the emphasis, like who spoke in tongues and who didn't. And if you have, if you speak in tongues, you're holier than this guy or whatever else. And it's, it, oftentimes it is emotionally driven. And that's, um, that's a problem for, for me. That's why we, we you're not really going to see that here. Um, if it happens in your own personal life, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I'm not going to sit there and criticize you. That's, that's how you worship God. If that's how you communicate with God, great. And as Andre said, if someone stood up and started doing that, there better be an interpretation for it or it's, it's you know, you've kind of hijacked the, the service at that point. So anyway, that's just kind of the way that's where we're at. But I, again, that's like this is grace. There's, a, there's grace on that. Like, I, I don't know. Some things I just, you know, okay, God, you're a big God, and I'm not going to sit there and say I know this doesn't exist or whatever. So that's kind of where I come from.
0: Really good stuff. Well, we're out of time. Andre, would you mind closing us in some prayer
2: Holy Father, we just uh, come before you, and we're just um, we're just humbled, Lord, that um, you even take the time just to be with us, Lord, to uh, not only give purpose to our worship, but to uh, just bless it with your presence. The Holy Spirit is amazing, and we just thank you for uh, what He does, Lord God. I thank you for the questions. I mean, it takes a lot for a person to ask a question, and 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 face possibly being just just the, being fearless lord just being fearless to ask a question i think so many times we're so politically correct oriented that we we don't have true conversations and i thank you man progressively in each service man not only have you shown up but your holy spirit in the hearts of of this church have shown up and the questions have been so awesome and we just thank you for that and lord what we've modeled today i hope it's been pleasing to you i hope it's been an, uh, an amazing aroma to you lord and i pray lord that this would be um, just a catalyst for us to leave this place and, and challenge some of the ideologies that are out there that are seeking to defame who you are, especially who Jesus is, Lord, that we would just ask the questions, the challenge thinking, that we would not worry about being politically correct, but we would worry about being Christ-centered. And so, Lord God, I just thank you once again for all the families that are represent. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word of truth that we rely on, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to relate, as Brother Tim said, to relate to one another. Bless each one as they go from this place, Lord, that we might know you better and we would seek you always. In Jesus' name.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and
0: change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.cobleschurch.info and we'll see you next time.